Okay, he is my favorite son, by the way. People, people say, which, which kid is your favorite? I go, I have a favorite son. The girls are kind of tied, but really the favorite is the grandkids. <laughs> I have a favorite grandson, and then the girls are all tied. So that's how that works. But we all have favorites, right? I mean, I don't know if you have favorite kids. You probably do. You just don't tell anybody. But um, like you have a favorite team, probably a team that you root for if you're a sports person. I have a favorite team. I don't know if anybody knew about that, but I have this team I root for, and it breaks my heart all the time. But I have this team that I root for, and like last night when they got beat at the buzzer by that stupid crosstown school with their red shirts, it was not good. But anyway, I'm, I'm not upset. <laughs> We have favorites. We did this thing in our grace group this week. It was really fun. I thought, well, it'd be kind of icebreaker. It'll be fun. I said, we're going to go around. Tell us your favorite kind of food. And I thought, you know, five minutes, we'll get everybody's favorite kind of food and move on. Half hour later, we are still talking about our favorite foods, our favorite restaurants. How come Taco Lita is disgusting and no one should ever go there? Um, and all that kind of stuff. And by the time we're done talking about this, we just want to stop Grace Group and go out to eat. All we were thinking was food. Um, we have favorite uh, people, people we love to be around. Um, we have favorites, and that's okay. It's good. It's good to have favorites. It's perfectly natural to prefer spending time with one person over another. But when favorites become favoritism... That's an entirely different situation. And James is going to address that for us this week as we open our Bibles to James chapter 2. So uh, if you're new around here, we, uh, we go through the Word of God and, and we're in James chapter 2 this week. And uh, some of you should be excited about that because we're not in chapter 1, right? So we're making huge progress. Um, we're now in James chapter 2. And as you turn there, we're going to look together, uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. As you're looking for that, it gives me a chance to tell you, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you need one on Sunday mornings. If you don't have a Bible, see me afterwards, and I will put a Bible in your hand. It will be your Bible. You can take it home, enjoy it. God bless you. But uh, we're always going to be in the Word of God on Sunday morning, so it will help you. Uh, let's look at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich man who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But... If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In a time when our society is more divided than I have ever seen it in my lifetime, 
um, I think this is a message we all need to hear. And, and particularly this message um, that James is giving us today, I think as a suburban middle-class church, we especially need to hear it. Um, God has some things to say to us about what it looks like to actually be Christians, and that's what James just keeps hammering home to us. He keeps showing us that it makes a big difference if you're a Christian, and, and he's writing to this first century church, and we might think, wow, this church in the Roman Empire in the first century must so far detached from us, nothing like us. They have nothing in common with us. Here's the thing. This issue of dividing people by classes is not new to us. We did not make this up. This has been going on since civilization began, and it was prominent in the Roman world. Remember, we saw at the beginning of our study of James that when he writes, he's writing to who? The 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. That's who he addresses his letter to. The 12 tribes, Jews, these are Christian Jews who are being uh, persecuted for their faith and therefore they have had to leave their homes and they have had to go from Jerusalem where they're in a nice little Jewish community with nice little Jewish people that they've known all their life and there are Jewish customs and Jewish laws and the Jewish temple and all these things that just make it comfortable for them to live in their culture. But because they've come to Christ, suddenly they're being persecuted and they've had to flee from Jerusalem. And now they're living all throughout the Roman Empire in these Gentile lands. So now not only are they Christian, which is weird, but they are Jewish, which is also weird in these lands. And so they don't fit in. And they had to just pack a suitcase and head out. They, some of these people went from being very wealthy to very poor. They walked away from jobs, they walked away from homes, they walked away from families, they walked away from everything, and they're just starting over. These people are refugees, and this is common in the news today. We see issues about refugees around the world and the situation. People that literally just got on a boat and just barely made it out before they were put to death and end up on the shore somewhere else, and they're trying to figure out how to survive. This is the same kind of situation that these people were in that James is writing to. And yes, they've established themselves, and now they're starting their lives, and they have a church, and they're beginning to start to experience life, and yet... They are used to living in the Roman community. And in Rome, the classes are divided. And the division between wealthy and poor is absolutely evident. In other words, wealthy people dress differently than poor people, then and now. Today, wealthy people live in nicer houses. In those days, wealthy people lived in nicer houses. Today, wealthy people drive fancy cars. Then, the wealthy people had chariots. Today, wealthy people have jewelry. Then, wealthy people had jewelry. In fact, it was a big deal uh, in Rome that the richer you were, the more rings you wore on your hand. And there were people who'd wear two or three rings per finger on all ten fingers and walk around not even able to bend their fingers because they're showing off their wealth. And they want, to know, they want people to know when they walk into a room or when they go into the marketplace, hey, you're dealing with a super wealthy person. And whenever you had a super wealthy person, they usually had an entourage because super wealthy people have hangers on, right? And there's always somebody who's kissing up to them, always somebody who's trying to help them out, always somebody who wants to serve them and help them, give them the good seats, help them into the theater or wherever they're going. It's no different than it is today. So it wasn't just common in Rome, it was common everywhere. And the interesting thing is that 
people don't tend to mix based on wealth, right? We, we Wealthy people live in different neighborhoods than poor people, right? That's true in our culture. It was true then. So you're, if you're rich, your neighbors are rich. If you're poor, your neighbors are poor. Uh, wealthy people, their kids go to different schools than poor people's kids go to, right? And, and, you know, hopefully you're not naive enough to think that an education in a wealthy upper-class neighborhood at a private school is the same level of education as you're getting in the inner city. It's not, right? So those kids don't even know each other. Those families don't mix together. The people don't spend time together. And as a result, the rich tend to, tend to, look down upon the poor, and the poor tend to resent the rich. And that's just kind of the way it's been in every culture, in every civilization for all of time, and it's certainly that way in our situation. So it's been true throughout centuries all around the world. It's natural. People of different socioeconomic standing just don't tend to mix. It's natural. It is normal. It's just not Christ-like. And the fact that it's not Christ-like is the thing that ought to wake us up as Christians. So let me just say, if you're here today and you're visiting and you're like checking out this whole church thing, checking out this whole Jesus thing, trying to find out if there's anything to this, I'm glad you're here because I want you to know this sermon is not for you. I'm not preaching to you. James was not writing to you when he wrote this. But I'm glad you're overhearing this conversation that we're having kind of in a family meeting in the church because I want you to understand that the, the, the impression you may have of Jesus, if you don't know him, the impression you may have of him is probably been shaped by the people you know who claim to know him. And if the people you know who claim to know him are elitist, prejudicial, judgmental people, then you have this idea of Jesus. And I want you to understand, that's not who Jesus is. And you're going to find that out when you hear what Jesus expects of his church. And if you are a part of God's church, then this is a time for you to sit up and take notice and listen, because God has some things to say to you and me. And God's not happy with some things that are true in churches in general in our culture today, and he wants it dealt with. Because it might be normal, it might be common, it might be natural for us to divide ourselves from people based on socioeconomic class, based on race, based on age, based on gender. It might be normal, it's just not Christ-like. And God has a higher standard for us. Because don't you think it's time for us to stop thinking in terms of what is common and what's normal and what's acceptable in society and instead start thinking in terms of what's most pleasing to God? That's what God's calling us to. I've had the blessing, such, a, such an incredible privilege in my life and ministry um, where I've gotten to be involved in uh, church uh, communities uh, that, are, that are profoundly different from one another culturally. One of the things that happened in our church's history is that uh, we planted a Korean church and a Chinese church. So we had an English-speaking church, and we planted a Korean church and a Chinese church at the same time, and all three of those congregations were meeting in the same place and trying to figure out how we can have real fellowship together with people who speak different language, come from a different country, eat different foods, think different ways. I mean, it was challenging. 
And, and one of the things that would happen, we would get together in meetings among the pastors of the congregations, and we would sort of talk about some of the challenges that we were facing. And, and I'm going to just be blunt and honest about this. Some of these challenges, they were just so surface level, so stupid, but they made such an impact. Like, like the Korean church, it is traditional in every Korean church I know of, every Korean church I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of lots of them, the only thing I've ever seen is that they take meals together. It's part of worship. It's as much a part of worship as us singing on Sunday mornings. They take meals together. It's part of what they do. And, and so um, they would have a, a later service after the English language service. They would have a later service, and then the English language uh, congregation would come back in the evening for an evening service, and in between, they would be cooking kimchi in the church building. Now, maybe you love kimchi, maybe you don't love kimchi, but uh, if you've ever smelled kimchi cooking, you know what it is, right? And, and I mean, every chair and every wall absorbs the smell of it, and then, so we would have a, another congregation come back in the evening and go, oh my gosh, it smells like socks in here. What is this, right? And people are frustrated. Why do we let them here? Why are they, t-? you know, we, we turn against each other based on something that is just a cultural preference thing, right? So we would have to get together and we would, we would talk about how to solve these problems among the leaders of these congregations. And, and it, we knew it was an uphill battle. It's not easy. It's way easier to just have everybody be the same age group, same, uh, uh, same language, same uh, race, same socioeconomic, and put them all together. Boy, that's so much easier. It just doesn't look very much like heaven. That's the problem with that. And so we were trying to do something that was difficult. And, and we would sit and talk, and we would say, um, you know, sometimes maybe the Korean pastor would go, well, you know, it's, it's just it's Korean culture, for us to do this or that, and and uh, or I would say, you know, in in our church culture, like this is kind of offensive. And the Chinese pastor would go, you know, in our church we don't do it this way; we do it kind of that that way in the Chinese church. And and finally, after seeking the Lord so much on this, we finally had to come to a conclusion. And here's the conclusion we came to: There's nothing wrong with Korean culture. There's nothing wrong with Chinese culture. There's nothing wrong with American culture or fill in the blank. But God calls us to something higher. He calls us to Christian culture. And Christian culture loves people no matter what. Christian culture decides that people have dignity and worth no matter what. Christian culture is about serving other people no matter what. Christian culture is about glorifying God no matter what. Christian culture is about crossing, building bridges to cross the gaps that separate us. And there comes a time where we have to go, listen, I respect this culture, I respect this culture, I respect that culture. But isn't God calling us as Christians to have a Christ-like culture? And isn't it about time that we stop worrying so much about what's normal and acceptable out there and start living the way that Christ would have us live? And you could break it down. I mean, you could think in terms of uh, just um, uh, the, the American church. Maybe you grew up in a Presbyterian church. Man, if you ever grew up in a Presbyterian church and then somebody invites you to a Pentecostal church, it will, yea, verily, verily, freaketh you out, right? <laughs> That's what happens. Or, or, you know, if you grew up in an African-American church and then you find yourself in a white church, or if you grew up in a white church and you find yourself in an African-American church and the whole, everything stylistically is different and everything is different, or you, you go, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church, but now I'm in this Methodist church. Like, there's all these cult- cultures. Isn't it time that we said it's Christ? 
It's Christ. It's not our preferences. It's not what we're used to. It's Christ. And we got to let Christ be first. God's calling each of us to something higher, regardless of race, regardless of gender, nationality, regardless of, yes, I'm going to say it out loud, political affiliation. God's calling us to adopt a Christian culture based on a biblical worldview, based on the teachings and the example of Jesus, based on the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we are called to something higher, but the attitudes and actions of the culture can so easily creep into the church. We are not immune to this. And neither was the first century church immune to this. And that's why James wrote as directly and uh, confrontationally as he did about this issue. Because just as the rich and powerful were treated better in the marketplace than the poor, they were also treated better in the church than the poor. And James said, this is unacceptable. This cannot be. It simply cannot be in the church of Christ. And by the way, that, that message that God had for the first century church in Rome is the same message that he has for the 21st century church in Duarte. It hasn't changed. Jesus taught us to be the light of the world. And that's what James keeps driving home if we've been through chapter one already. Here's what we saw, that we should be different. We should be different in the way we deal with trials as Christians. We should be different in our approach to wisdom as Christians. We should be different when it comes to handling temptations as Christians. We should be different in the way that we communicate, the way we listen, the way that we talk, the way that we handle our anger. We should be different in all these ways. And by all means, as Christians, we should be different in the way that we treat people. In fact, if there's to be any discrimination among the people of God, we as representatives of Christ should discriminate on the side that shows extra compassion to the weak, extra grace to the poor, extra um, concern to the marginalized and the outcast and the refugee. That should be what we're known for. And when the people of God fail to show kindness and compassion and justice to the poor, God takes it very seriously. We touched on this last week, but I want us to go back and really um, grasp some of this. And oh my goodness, I did a Bible study on this this week, just kind of going, okay, how much does the Bible really say? Does, what is God's heart really like for the poor? How does God feel about social justice? How does God feel about criminal justice? How does God feel about the way that the marginalized are treated? And, I, and I'm telling you, I could give you today, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I could give you 300 verses on what God has to say about this. And he says the same thing over and over and over again from a hundred different angles. I'm gonna give you a few examples. I'm gonna just put them on the screen. Don't look them up, we're not gonna take the time. Here it is right there on the screen. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. He who is, is oppressive to those who are hurting and poor and weak, is mocking God, Proverbs says. And, and Galatians says, do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. So don't think for a second that, that God is okay with him being mocked. He is not okay with him being mocked, and there are consequences to mocking God. And he says in Proverbs 14, 31, that if we do oppress the poor, we're mocking God. How about 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18? Whoever uh, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need 
and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You know what? I mean, all John is saying is the same thing that people in our society are saying. Don't tell me about it. I've heard all about your Christianity. Show me. We should be loving people in word and deed, not just in the things that we say. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 27. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. We all know what he's talking about. The tendency that we have when we see poor people to just go, I'm going to look away. If I could just forget about it, if I could just not pay attention. It's not like we don't know. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not just talking about, hey, there's a homeless person, you know, at the red light asking for money. I'm not just talking about that. I realize it's not always easy to know what is helping and what is not helping. I get all of that. But how about the fact that we just know, we know because we live in this world that there are people that are broken and, and starving and there are people without access to medication. There are children dying by the millions of diarrhea all around the world. And we know that. And how much is the church doing about that? I will say this. There are more Christian relief organizations that are doing more to solve these problems than any other group that I know of. And yet... How much more could we be doing as individuals? If we shut our eyes, pretend like we don't see. Some of you are teachers. You have students in your classroom and you know what's going on with them. Hey, parents are going through a divorce. Hey, dad's in a gang. Hey, they just got evicted. Hey, this kid hasn't had a meal today. And you know about it. And God has placed you in that kid's life. Maybe there's some way you could be someone who connects that kid to some kind of help. Maybe you know somebody who needs a foster family. Maybe you know someone who needs to get adopted. We know these needs exist, but we are the church of Christ. It's up to us to step up and lead the way in this. And that's what James is telling us. If you look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13, it says this, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. That's what God means in Galatians when he says, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And, and think about it this way. We've all heard of Sodom, right? You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened to them? Right? They got dusted. They get fire and brimstone from heaven. God wiped them off the face of the earth. Everyone in that city was killed because of their sin. And so if you ask the average person, hey, what was the issue in Sodom? What made God so mad? What was God so upset about? The average person who would tell you that the problem was sexual immorality. There was all this sexual immorality in the city and God just had had enough of it and he did something about it. Or somebody might tell you it's idolatry. These people were pagans and they were worshiping just anything they made with their own hands and God had had enough of it so he wiped them out. But you know what? There's sexual immorality in every culture in the world. There is paganism in every culture in the world, and yet God wiped out Sodom. I wonder why. Well, it's interesting. Ezekiel tells us why. Take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament and go to the book of Ezekiel. It's like late in the Old Testament. There's a bunch of big prophet books there, Jeremiah and Isaiah, and go past that to uh, Ezekiel and go to chapter 16. This is really worth marking in your Bible. Ezekiel chapter 16 God tells us why he judged Sodom. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, 
this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Did you know that's why God judged Sodom? It was, it was because they were so blessed, they had so much, and yet they oppressed the weak. They didn't help the poor. They didn't help the needy. They didn't care for those who had desperate need. And God judged them for it. And this about sums it up. If, if you just flip back to Proverbs, look at Proverbs chapter 22 with me. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 2. If we're going to sum up this whole argument, here it is. The rich and the poor have a common bond, or the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. That's what God's trying to say. God's trying to say, I know you make distinctions. I know you, you classify people. I know you separate by race and by socioeconomic standing and by gender and by political parties and all that kind of stuff. But God says, you know what? Everybody has in common one thing. We're all made by the same God. And the fact that we're all made by the same God means that although there may be practical distinctions in our lives, those distinctions are not what define us. What defines us is the dignity of being made in the image of God. And that means that every human being, whatever their age, whatever their race, whatever their gender, whatever their nationality, whatever their religion, whether they are in the womb or out of the womb, whether they are old and draining society or whether they're young and contributing to society, every single person is in the same boat. We all have dignity. We all have value because we're all made in the image of God. That's what we have in common. And James is arguing that that which we have in common is way more important than all the things that separate us. Guys, I'm not saying nothing separates us. And I'm not saying that it's wrong that there are things that separate us. Like, it is God's perfect handiwork that there are people with all kinds of skin, cone, skin tones, that there are people who come from different parts of the world, that there are people who speak different languages, that some people have more money and other people have less money. I mean, there is a holy God who allows such things. And so this is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that... Um, that differences are bad, I'm saying that favoritism is bad. I'm saying that when we make distinctions about a person's value and what they ought to receive and how they ought to be treated based on these um, trivial things, that's when it gets bad. Now let's get back to the book of James and let James make his argument. James chapter 2, we're going to pick it up here in verse 5. James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brethren... Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? In other words, the fact that you're financially poor doesn't keep you out of heaven. The fact that you're financially poor doesn't mean that you can't be rich in faith. In fact, some of the people who are richest in faith are poorest in money. It's just how it is. He says, didn't God choose it that way? Um, heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? In other words, what did the poor guy ever do to you? Verse 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? What an interesting verse. These people, these rich people in this case, don't they blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? He's not talking about your name. 
He's not talking about your family name. He's not saying, don't they blaspheme the fair names by which you have all been called? That's not what he says. He says, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you collectively have been called? What is the fair name by which we collectively have been called? Christians. It's the name of Christ. He's saying, saying, so there are people who are actually antagonistic toward Christ and you would favor them over people who are, who are uh, open to Christ and full of faith but just don't have as much money. What's wrong with us, James says? Remember, James's original audience is Christian Jews living in Gentile lands. These are persecuted people. And yet, even in the church, they chose to, to make levels. They chose to separate people based on their wealth. So if you came in and find clothing, you were somebody special and you were kissed up to. And if you were a poor man, you were treated with disrespect and dishonor. And he says that ought not to be. God might ask the question of us this way. How can you have received so much from God and still find yourself withholding simple grace and kindness and goodness and respect and dignity to others? So James tells us that it all comes back to the law of love. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. What's the royal law? We're going to get into this more next week. What is the royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself. What did did Jesus say summed up the whole law and the prophets? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the royal law. He's saying, listen, you've got to take the law of love and it's got to be the filter through which you run every decision you have to make in your life. What is loving? What is honoring to God? What is loving to people? That's what I'm going to do. It's the golden rule in in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? First Jesus taught it in the Sermon on the Mount, then your mom taught it to you when you were a kid, right? What is the golden rule? Come on. All right, let's try that again. What is the golden rule? Yeah, that side knows it way better than you guys, I'm just telling you. Oh, wait, I shouldn't have done that unto them, should I? Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Right? Do unto others, treat others the way you want to be treated, Jesus says, right? And, and all of our moms taught us that when we were kids, I hope. And, and, and that's all James is saying too. In, in perfect James style, in verse 9, he just gets right in our face, cuts out all the pretense and says this to us. If you show partiality, you're committing sin. That's it. Stop with the excuses, stop with the yeah buts, stop with the I didn't mean it that way. If you show partiality, you're committing sin, James says. It's sin. We can't be on the fence on this one, church. The choice is between obediently loving our neighbor, however different from us they might be, and sinful discrimination on the other hand. Let me ask this question to kind of wrap things up. Um, just honest, honest, everybody participate, okay? Uh, before you came here today, how many of you took a look in a mirror? Raise your hands, come on. Some of you didn't raise your hands and we're all going, yeah, I know, I, I see. But, <laughs> right? 
You took a look in a mirror, didn't you? Why? Because you're about to go out in public. You want to know what you look like just in case there's anything that needs to be fixed, right? Like my hair is a mess in the morning. That's a problem for me, right? That I got to see that. I got to look in the mirror, make sure that's okay, right? So imagine that this morning, right before you got in the car to come to church, you said one last chance, let's take a look in the mirror. You look in the mirror and there's some big green thing hanging out of your nose. I know that's pleasant, isn't it? Everybody's kind of gone, right? If you saw that in the mirror, wouldn't you grab a Kleenex and do something about it, right? If you smiled and there was like spinach in your teeth, don't you think you would go grab a toothbrush and do something about it? See, James told us in chapter one that the word of God is like a mirror, that we're supposed to look into it and then do what it says. We're supposed to look into it, see who we really are, and then do something about it. And, and to, to, to look into this, the Word of God and have Him confront us about our attitudes toward people who are different from us and do nothing about it is absurd. He's telling us we have to do something about it. So I'm going to just give you some personal stuff to think about. Ask yourself some questions. How has the way I was raised affected the way that I look at certain groups of people or where I was raised or whom I was raised by? Uh, how, how do my political views impact the way I think about certain people? How, how about the books that I read or the, the music that I listen to? or the uh, incredibly biased cable news network channel that I choose to watch? How, how does that affect the way I think about people? How does that affect the way I think about the world? How does that deal with the way I look at people? The opinions of my friends, how does that affect the way I treat people? How much have you and I allowed our culture to shape the way we value and treat other people? And I'm not just talking about how the rich treat the poor. How do we view people of different race? How, how do we d- view people of different generations? This is kind of like a fun online thing these days, generations taking shots at each other, right? Like, like uh, do I think of people in a certain generation or a certain age group as, as either being, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, lazy slackers? Or, or just old, out-of-touch idiots, or sometimes both, right? How do I view people? How about people of other religions? How about people who have different political views? Or better yet, how about politicians? How come it's okay in our society? I'm talking about Christians now. I understand what unbelievers do. I get that. But I'm talking about Christians now, people who the Holy Spirit live in, people who have received the grace of God and understand what it is to be a failure who deserves nothing but judgment and have incredible grace poured out in our lives. I'm talking about us. How is it that it is okay for us that as long as a person is in the political realm, we can call them every name in the book? How is it that as long as we disagree with someone's political view, we could call them an airhead, an idiot, a fool, a buffoon, or whatever, and we do it oftentimes in public, and usually we do it on social media? How is it that that is okay when God says that everybody has one thing in common, we're all made by God? We all bear the image of God. 
How is it okay as Christians now, how is it okay that where there are people who are caught up in a specific kind of sin, that it's okay for us to just not associate with those people? But people who have other kinds of sins, like respectable ones, like the ones I have, that's okay. (laughs) Proverbs 22 is right. People are people. Regardless of all those distinctions, we're all just people. We're all deeply flawed. We're all completely needy. We're all desperate for the grace of God in our lives, and without the grace of God, you will not draw your next breath. I know that in our society, there are distinctions that are made, but God looks upon the heart, and He forbids His children to mistreat people for any reason at all. We're the church of Christ. We're the light of the world. We are the recipients of the amazing grace that we love to sing about. So ask yourself this, do I remind people of Jesus? When someone meets me, when someone is confronted by me, when someone watches my life or reads my social media posts, do I remind people of Jesus? Do people read what I post and say, boy, I bet Jesus would have said that? Or do we live by the same kinds of favoritism as the culture around us? Jesus was known for hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. Samaritans. Morally loose women. Tax collectors. Drunkards and partiers. People like that were drawn to Jesus. Even though he never once condoned their sin, never made it okay, never said, oh, it's fine to be a thief. In fact, he called people out of their sin, and yet they were drawn to him just in in huge amounts. Why were people so drawn to Jesus? And then ask yourself this question, are they drawn to me? How much do I remind people of Jesus? See, it's not enough to just nod our heads and say amen when James tells us this. We have to take a look in the mirror of God's Word. And when it shows us who we are, and we see that that needs to change, we need to do something about it. We have to allow Jesus to change us from the inside before we can expect Him to use us to change the world outside. How is Jesus changing you when it comes to the way you look at people? That's a question for you to sleep on tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as recipients of amazing grace, thankful for your goodness and your faithfulness and your touch in our lives. And Father, to one degree or another, I'm quite certain that everyone in this room, we have been guilty of uh, prejudice, prejudging people. We have been guilty of disrespecting people. We have often said the wrong things, done the wrong things, treated others as if they were not as valuable as we are, ignored the golden rule. And so we come to you, God, as as broken people who need healing. And we ask you to forgive us and to touch us and to grow us, fill us with your spirit, so that when people see us, they would somehow see you. May your word and the reflection we see of ourselves in it actually have a life-changing effect on us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.